<clears throat> if you want to follow where I am, I'm in John chapter 20. John 20, familiar stories, aren't they, these resurrection? Easter is a big thing, don't you think? Every time I think about it, it gets bigger. I think it's meant to be a big thing. It's not a small thing. It's a central thing. So Easter Day is a day to celebrate, isn't it? So however we do it, we're to celebrate. If you've been fasting through Lent, it's champagne and balloons and things because Christ is risen. If you've been tracing Jesus' testing through the wilderness, those 40 days, then rejoice with all your heart because Christ is risen. If you've been rereading the final week of Jesus' earthly life up to the crucifixion and burial, as many people do this last week, then you can rejoice with great joy because Jesus Christ is risen. But what, let me ask you, exactly are we celebrating? Well, of course we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, but what does it mean? We Christians are very good at throwing words around as if we all understood what they meant and assuming everyone else knows what they mean, even if we don't know. So it's worth asking ourselves a question. What it does the meaning, what is the meaning of the resurrection? We might think that the resurrection of Jesus is God saying something along the lines of, see, he really is my son, and the resurrection proves that Jesus really is God after all. Well, that's certainly true. Jesus is and always was God. We might think that his resurrection is God's promise to us. Now you can rest assured that since he rose, you will also be raised to life and look forward to a wonderful time with me forever. Well, that is also true. We certainly can look forward to our resurrection account. What exactly is the story the Gospel writers are trying to tell us with their account of what happened on Easter Sunday and beyond? Let's read from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, 
Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. His sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now each Gospel writer has taken great care to compile and compose the material they use in their Gospels to serve the purpose they want to show in writing their Gospels. And John helpfully tells us why he wrote his Gospel, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So on the face of it, we understand that his intent all along has been to kind of prove that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and that we should therefore believe it and have life in his name. Well, John certainly does want us to know that Jesus is God and that we should believe in him and receive life in him. But that's not the only way to read this verse. It's not only that John think that it's not that John doesn't think Jesus is divine. He clearly does. But that's not his primary goal here. He and the other evangelists presuppose that Jesus is God and never seek to prove it. But they're not so much discussing whether or not Jesus is God. What they're talking about is what God is doing in and through Jesus, which is a subtle difference, don't you think? In other words, what is this embodied God doing 
in the world? That's the question. Not, is Jesus God? And all the evidence is to heap together to prove that Jesus is God. That's not the question they're answering. The question they're asking him is, what is this God in bodily form doing in the world? So John's reason for writing is a little more subtle than it at first appears, so the scholars tell us. Since it comes immediately after Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, we tend to think that John is saying, see, I've written this book to prove that Jesus is God. Got it? That's what we think. But it's much richer than this. The phrase Son of God used in the Gospels does not mean the second person of the Trinity. Strangely, though you'd think it would. It comes from the Old Testament and especially from Psalm 2. It's a messianic title. The kings were called the Son of God. So when God promises David that one of his descendants will always sit on his throne, it'll be one of God's sons sitting on the throne. Not the second person of the Trinity, first of all, but a human being, the Messiah, who is to come. They always thought the Messiah as being a human person. So you can read these words in this way. But these are written that you may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, in brackets, whom you have been longing for all this time, close brackets, is none other than Jesus. The one you have been waiting for is none other than Jesus. In other words, this Jesus, and not someone else, is the Messiah. And in this man alone, we see the way that the living God is establishing his kingdom in Psalm 2. And if Jesus is the Messiah, and he is, then his public career and his death are the way, and not some other way, how Israel's God is accomplishing and establishing his kingdom on earth. Are you getting this? This is a very big thing. And what John is saying, this Messiah, this Son of God, this coming king and coming kingdom, well, Jesus is that one. And this is the way God is establishing his kingdom for which Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So everything that happened over the Easter period is not an accident. It's not a failure. It's a deliberate way in which God says, this is the way I'm bringing in my kingdom. So John has written his book to show that it's in Jesus and his death and resurrection that Israel's God has done what he promised he would do in and through Israel's anointed king, and has in this way revealed finally and fully who he himself actually is. So I discovered, even in this last week or so, that the Anglicans, in all their services, always include a gospel reading for this reason, that it is in Jesus, and supremely in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we see God most clearly. That's why they always include it.
the cross is the place and the means by which God revealed himself most fully and loved us to the uttermost. So what is God doing? He's establishing his kingdom. Easter day is a new beginning, not just that we can have life and life carries on much as it did before and we just hope we'll live out our time and one day we're going to see God face to face in heaven and everything will be fine. That's not what it's all about. It's about a new beginning here. Now, remembering back to John chapter 1 verse 1, any Jew or reader of the scriptures, Old Testament, would understand what John is saying. John starts his gospel in the beginning. Well, you immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, which says, in the beginning. So your mind tracks back to that and you expect John to say something about God. And he does, but not what you're expecting. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And John tells us a little later in the same chapter that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, a point the rest of the first chapter makes clear in a variety of ways. So we know that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually the one who was not only present at creation, but the one through whom and by whom creation was originally made. And on day six of the creation story, he made human beings, a man and a woman, in God's image and declared them to be very good. And by this time, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on day seven, he rested from all his work. Of course, we know that's not the end of the story. Adam and Eve spoiled it profoundly, catastrophically, for us and for the world. And we know that that wasn't the end of the story. So Isaiah, moving rapidly through the Old Testament, Isaiah promises a new day coming when God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. Daniel, a little later on, speaks of a kingdom that would endure forever. In, those, in, that, in the time of those kings, he writes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be handed over to others. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And one of the Psalms tells us of a king who will rule that enduring kingdom. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So a coming new creation, a coming kingdom that will last forever, a coming king who would sit on that throne of that kingdom that will last forever, well, John, in his account of the crucifixion of Jesus, which you probably have read at some point in the recent days, John 18 and 19, records precisely the scenario that Psalm 2 spoke about. The kings of the earth and the rulers gathered together. Pilate represents the kings of the earth. He stands in place of the emperor of Rome, the powerful nation at that time. 
and the rulers gather together under the guise of Annas, Annas, Caiaphas, and all the other priestly caste. And they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. John 18 and 19 and the other gospel writers tell us all about that. This confrontation. Jesus specifically says to Pilate that he has a kingdom, but not a kingdom like any other kingdom he has ever known. It's a kingdom that exists not by brute force and violence suppressing people, but a kingdom that operates by love. And over this king and over this kingdom, Pilate would have no authority at all unless it was given to him from above. So the ironic title that is put above Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is absolutely true, though it's meant to be a mockery. He's the king not only of the Jews, but of the whole world too. So Jesus announces God's kingdom before Caesar's representative, while Israel's leaders declare in those chilling words, like we had when Samuel, in Samuel's day they asked for a king, like they could be like all the other nations. The religious leaders of Jesus' day say, we have no king but Caesar. The result is the paradoxical enthronement of Jesus on the cross, the final moment of the fulfillment of the great scriptural story. And Jesus' final word, it's all done, it is finished, says it clearly. The story has been completed. The story of God's covenant with Israel. Now new creation can begin. Now the new covenant can be launched as the disciples are sent out into the world, equipped with God's spirit. This is how Israel's story has reached its goal and can now bear fruit in all the world. John 19 and verse 30, which says this, when he received the drink, Jesus said it is finished, matches exactly, so those who understand the languages say, of God in, John, in Genesis 2, 2, when he says it's finished. The creation story is finished. And immediately after that, you have a rest day. God rests on the seventh day, which is precisely what Jesus does on day seven. He dies on day six. John is very precise with his timings. Whether or not he's playing games with us, we don't know, because he doesn't agree with the synoptic gospel writers. But he has a purpose in his dating. Jesus dies on day six, and on day seven he rests, just like his father did in that original creation. And then he rises to life again on the first day, not only of the week, but the first day of a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So the tomb is empty. Jesus appears to Mary in the garden, and she mistakes him as the gardener. Adam and Eve were created and placed in the garden to look after the new creation. And Jesus is mistaken for the gardener. It's a mistake, but it's a good one to make because he's doing precisely what Adam and Eve were required to do, which is to bring in this new creation and authorize us to look after it. So like Adam, he is charged with bringing God's new world to order. And in the new creation, the ancient human mandate to look after God's creation is dramatically reaffirmed. So the first thing Jesus does to his disciples 
is not congratulate them that they now can be raised to life again, but is to commission them. Did you notice that? That's what John is telling us. Something has happened not so the disciple can sit back and think, okay, everything's sorted now. All we've got to do is bide our time on life and eventually we'll get to eternity and everything will be fine. No, the first thing that happens when Jesus comes to him is he charges them, he commissions them, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Your responsibility is to care for this new creation that I have inaugurated and that one day will come in all its fullness. Your charge is to go and look after it, proclaim it, both in word and deed. He is deliberately echoing the Genesis story. So when he says to them and breathes on them the breath of life and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you and I think, is that Pentecost or not? Well, John was at Pentecost. And he wrote his gospel after Pentecost. So he's not confused. He knows when Pentecost happens. But he has Jesus doing this at this point because it happened. Because Jesus in the garden is creating a new humanity and breathing into them the breath of life just like God did in Genesis 2. And he's consciously mimicking that because this is a new creation. And he's charging his disciples with looking after it and equipping them to look after it. So what is Easter all about? Easter is about new creation. It's a huge and stunning gift of transforming grace. With Easter, God's new creation is launched upon a surprised world, pointing ahead to the renewal and redemption and rebirth of the entire creation that will come one day. And the resurrection is the foundation of this renewed way of life in and for the world. So Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. So our destiny is not sometime in the future be taken from earth to heaven to live there and this earth be wrapped up because the whole point of Jesus' saving grace is the restoration of all things. He didn't sweep away humanity and say, I'll make a new lot, but he rescued the damaged, broken humanity that we were. And in precisely the same way, instead of sweeping away the earth and giving us a new one, he's going to restore the old one, remake it, renew it. And that's what resurrection on Easter Day is all about. That has started. Jesus is risen, therefore Israel and the world have been redeemed. Jesus is risen, therefore his followers, you and me, have a job to do, to bring the life of heaven to birth on earth in actual physical reality. That's what our charge is. Not to boast about how we have been saved, but to live out this new resurrection life in the midst of this still broken world so people can see the new creation even in the rest of the world now. So Easter commissions Jesus' followers with a task and Pentecost equips them for it. So when the final resurrection occurs as a centerpiece of God's new creation, we will discover that everything done in the present world 
in the power of Jesus' own resurrection, will be celebrated and included in that new birth. Everything we do in the power of the Spirit to the glory of Jesus matters. So every act of love, every deed done in Christ and the Spirit, every work of true creativity, every time justice is done or peace is made or families are healed or temptation is resisted or true freedom is sought and won, this earthly event takes his place in the historical record which implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new resurrection. So we say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So we don't then rock back into our rocking chairs and say, praise the Lord for that, thank goodness. We say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Therefore, we go and proclaim this truth by living out this truth in the power of the Spirit to the praise and glory of his name. We proclaim that God's new world has begun in Jesus. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. <clears throat>